So this is Sunday church time for those in the UK. A sacred moment in time. Actually, we would normally in Oklahoma have lunch at about four in the afternoon on Sunday. So that's another kind of heaven. <laughs> Those the ladies would be cooking all afternoon. <laughs> starting right after church. So uh, today on the menu, uh, starting to talk with uh, uh, David about um, the organization that has been, uh, let us say, with bits and starts underway for a couple of years now with some people uh, uh, gaining more interest in it. But the idea is uh, a kind of a universal gathering place for uh, Western Buddhism. Because right now, Western Buddhism is shattered. It's scattered. It's competitive. It is a little bit from here and a little bit from there and a little bit from over there. And a whole lot of people are confused about what's going on. And the one thing that it's that Western Buddhism is missing is uh, actually a, a quality that's so important that to, that within Buddhism, the religion of Buddhism is considered part of the triple gem, and that is the Sangha. Western Buddhism has no Sangha; it has a Western business model instead. <laughs> And that not only that, but um, the the Sangha model is almost uh, a no-no in Western society. Because uh, whatever Stalin was doing in the Soviet Union and whatever Mao was doing in China, a couple of words got trashed along the way. Socialism and communism were uh, literally destroyed. And yet, we are social animals. The whole reason why socialism appeals is because it's instinctual within us. And that it is almost um, uh, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the survival mechanism uh, or the instinct of that that brings out the greed that is capitalism. So you could say that capitalism is selfish and socialism is sharing. And it sure would be nice that Buddhism based upon sharing model and based upon Sangha and based upon friendship could find some of that in Western Buddhism rather than the Western model that's going for charging money for retreat, gaining name and fame from writing a book and all of the other stuff. I mean, mostly what a retreat is, is nothing but a and b and an announcer. And so what we can do is begin to add <clears throat> the Asian model that is actually quite uh, well known in Asia into the Western model 
to start making some uh, changes, to start adding some sanghas, to start adding some cooperation and friendship. And that uh, uh, there's several ways that we can do that. One of them is, is that there are a number of people, some of which may be on this call and have and have that call, is, is that they want to find their way into becoming a Dhamma teacher or ordaining or doing something like that, and they don't really have a clue except what's already available in Western Buddhism. And so they'll wind up paying $7,000 for a teacher's course, and all they get out of it is a piece of paper, a certificate, a qualification. That and a lot of in, uh, internet and probably emails. But uh, the, the way that we might in fact look at being trained is the way that teachers of the Dhamma have been trained for the past 2,500 years, and that is by being associated with monks. And there just happens to be quite a number of Asian Watts, especially in the United States and Canada. They are in Mexico, they're in the UK, they're in Europe, they're all over the place. But these are cultural centers. And the reason that there's so many of them in the US is because of the Vietnam War. And so we have <clears throat> millions of Vietnamese, Laotians, Cambodians, and Thai already here are already in the US. And uh, the last that I heard, there's about 400 Asian Watts in the US. Well, if we found one guy who was wanting to go hang out at a Watt, we could accommodate 400 guys right off the bat. All we have to do is find the guys who are just in that mood for it. <laughs> The mood to drop it all, quit their job and go live in the Watt. Because there, one of the things about the Watch, by the way, in the West is, is that they were uh, established by the Asian uh, community who wanted a little bit of home. Most of the Asians that came to the U.S. were sponsored by various Christians groups. And so it was only into the 90s when they started building all of these Watts and uh, coming back to their cultural roots. And the Asian people are pretty smart. I mean, they've been Buddhists their whole lives. They know what is a good monk and what's not a good monk. And so if they're going to Asia to go shopping for a good monk that they're going to pay uh, the way for and deal with the government to get a religious visa and all of that kind of stuff, then they're going to be shopping carefully. So that's one of the things that's quite amazing is that there's a lot of good monks. <clears throat> Thai monks and Thai Wats in the United States, good Laotian monks in the Lao Wats. That's something that's very typical. And so most of us don't know about that. So that's one avenue. Another avenue would be that there are a number of teachers already somewhat established, Western teachers, but they don't know each other. They're not in community with one another. And it would be good if we could have an established Zoom call once a week or once a month that it was open forum for Dhamma teachers already established so that they could come together and communicate, 
share ideas, network, that kind of thing, the kind of thing that's done in Thailand by the monks. When I was a monk in the United States, I did a lot of traveling around and, and began to know a lot of the monks. And so uh, that helped with with the networking. Uh, and so I understand that that networking is already established and available. And that we've already tapped into that, that we've got several of the monks that we know of and any one of the ways that we would suggest, in fact, there's an old Zoom video about this that's on the, uh, the, the channel where Robert and I were talking about how to get into the watch. And he and I at that time, a couple of years ago, were already establishing our links to the Thai community in the US. And so um, the right thing to do is, is to for you guys to go local into your own uh, <clears throat> software, Google and whatnot, the Google Maps uh, thing, and go find the local Thai or Asian temples in your neighborhood and go pop in there and gan take a gander, meet some people. Uh, if it's a Thai Wat, mention Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and that will be just an open door for you. Mm. Just to go hang out in these lots. Uh, uh, the best time of, uh, to do it is on Sunday morning, just at the time when we're calling, in fact. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, and so. Uh, the reason for that is because Sunday is the uh, the, the normal Buddha day to where it uh, uh, goes by the moon in Thailand, but they've adopted the, the week because of the Western habits. And so that's where the people, when the people gather uh, is on Sunday morning, but not for a sermon so much as lunch for the monks. And so that would be a good time to show up. You can see a lot of people and and get a feel for the place. Um, and that over time, if you keep going back to the watch, you'll get more and more familiar. You'll learn the monks names. You'll figure out who's who uh, spend time with the abbot. One of the ways of uh, uh, having good quality time with a really, really high quality monk is by offering to take him places in your car because he more than likely wouldn't dare drive himself but he'll have conversation with you if you offer to uh give him rides so um this is a way of working into establishing yourself into the watch so that eventually within a, a few months you can sit down and have a weekly meditation that we can now advertise for people in your city and community to come to the watch so that we can get more and more people associated with coming to the watch and finding out that there's a lot of stuff valuable there. And so this is what we're uh, promoting through our website, uh, connecting with the watch connecting the Asian people with the uh, 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 Western people so that the Western people will learn Buddhism from native Buddhist 
rather than from other implanted Buddhists. It's almost like a language, you know. Would you rather learn a language from a, from someone who knows the language you're trying to learn as a second language? That's the problem with learning Thai or learning English in the Thai school is the Thai teachers, they don't speak English. They speak what is best known as Thailish. <laughs> Uh, and uh, this best known in India, there's actually a complete dialect now established in India simply because the Indians didn't know how to speak English. But they taught each other English anyway. So that's what we have in Western Buddhism is, is that you have a whole bunch of people teaching a language they don't know. And it's best to go to uh, get in touch with the Asians to learn the language of uh, the, the, the Buddha Dhamma. And so this is what I'm wanting to support and to get us in touch with so that on the website we can add more and more data about uh, what different watches are available and what systems are going on and what retreats are happening because eventually that will happen that we'll start doing weekend retreats on the on the watch. The monks would love to do that and so would the lay people. The lay people will actually feed you. If you came in on Friday evening and stayed till Monday morning, guess what? Saturday and Sunday lunch will be a feast. <laughs> <laughs> and so we can do these retreats very inexpensively and it's better to do them often and if we did a retreat once a month at every watt that's what 400 retreats a month that we would be doing not we in the sense of the guys who running the website but people humans and that this is the idea of spreading the Dhamma like that and also being able to, through uh, donations, support those guys who were really serious about getting into the Dhamma, rather than them having to keep their jobs and pay for some well-known teacher to give them a certificate. What model are they in then? It's better if they just quit their job and go hang out at the Watt. And we'll give them a little money, you know, they might need a cell phone or a laptop or keep some put some gas in their car once in a while so we can support them a little bit for a couple of hundred dollars a month so long as they're staying in the watch getting a Dhamma education. A lot of people think that that if you're going to go live in the Watt, you've got to be ordained like it was Catholic or something to where in that fact that's not at all true in most watts in Asia and that's also quite true and even in the West that most of the people who live in the Watt are not ordained they just hang out and so there'll be West Asians there that are probably not ordained that it, if they don't sleep there every night they're there quite often and these are good people to know too I mean if you've got somebody who knows English and is hanging out at the Watt most of the time, he's a good Dhamma friend. And so there's a lot of opportunity, and that's one of the things that I don't spend time encouraging students enough, is to go and spend, go wherever you are in the United States, 
generally within a short drive, there will be a Thai Wat. And if not a Thai, then a Lao or a Cambodian or whatever that's available uh, all the way into uh, Chinese. I mean, even in Charlotte, North Carolina, there's a Chinese Buddhist temple. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? And they weren't even in the war. <laughs> Which, by the way, also in Charlotte, there's at least three Cambodian Wats, four Laotian Wats, one Thai Wat, and three Vietnamese Wats in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there's not a military base there. That's why the Taiwat's not big. Basically, this is kind of funny. This is because most of the guys in uh, that did R&R in Thailand picked up a bride and took her back to whatever military base he was in in the U.S. And the Thai girls at that military base started a what? And so every military base in the United States has a Taiwat close by. <laughs> including Shaw Air Force Base in Sumter, South Carolina. There is a Taiwan, <laughs> but not in the capital city of Columbia, which is only about 60 miles away. Isn't that interesting? There's also a Taiwan in Fayetteville, North Carolina, because of Fort Bragg and Fort Hunt in Texas and all over the place. And in fact, uh, because there's so much military stuff in Washington state, there is so many Taiwats in Washington state. I know of three of them. That's a really good place to go, especially to go to Wat Atamaya Tarama and uh, that has Achan Reet as the, uh, the abbot. That's a really good place to start. But there are Wats in every state. Atan Maya Atan Rama? Uh-huh. That, in fact, that word Atan Maya Ta is a dead giveaway that this wat is associated with Deku Buddha Dasa. <laughs> we'll have to check with them to see where they are with the uh, COVID now. But if you're in Washington State, that's a good place to start. Uh, but there, uh, by the way, uh, uh, Keyshawn is checking out the watts in Chicago. And so this would be something that we could all do is just to go check out the local watts. I've already done my job. I mean, I, <laughs> Wat Po is only 50 meters from here, and Wat Nook is uh, just down the corridor, and Wat Cow uh, Tum is within two kilometers, and right over the short distance over there is Wat Tom. So I've got my watch covered. How about you? Do you know where <laughs> your watts are? <laughs> Because that's where we'll also find a lot of Dhamma. There's a lot of monks out there, and they uh, generally don't speak English well, but they speak Dhamma very well. And so this is the idea of the Open Sangha Foundation, is to start making that connection 
And part of it eventually is to start to take the money and the business then out of the Western uh, uh, Sangha or the Western Buddhism. But that's not the first step to do. That's the last step. First, we've got to get them intermixed and understanding a whole generation of understanding that the right way to go is to go the Asian way rather than with the business model. And then the business model will just die out on its own. Mm. I mean, look at Christianity. Christianity knows how to get some money now, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) They're good at it and they don't charge any fees. So the problem with Western Buddhism is that it's bought into the psychologist model, the university model, um, the business model. Uh, And it uh, actually works much better in the uh, uh, generosity model. I mean, in fact, that's one of the main teachings of the Buddha is to learn to be generous and open hearted with each other. How can the teacher teach you generosity and open-heartedness when he's got a price tag on it? And not only that, but then everybody gets the business model in mind um, so that the retreats, for instance, that there's no preparation for a retreat. You do the retreat while you're there, you pay your money, you got what you did, and when the retreat's finished, business done, and off you go. But that's not the kind of relationships that we're wanting to form at all. No, we wanted good in the beginning before the retreat starts. We wanted good in the middle while the retreat's going on, and we wanted good in the end after the retreat's over. And the way to do that is by getting the generosity model going, getting the Donna model going, but that'll only happen when people feel safe and secure with it when they actually figure out that they can do quite well off of other people's generosity. When you have something generous to give, you'll they'll be generous back with you. So that's one of the ways that I work is that I don't ask for money, but what I, I don't give any money either. All I give is my time. And so all I'm asking you is to give a little of your time. It will be of enormous value for you also. (laughs) (laughs) And so we won't go into some of the details we've got in other places like an actual teacher's training program. The actual teacher's training program would be including Zoom to where all of the teachers who want to practice teaching will be there on a Zoom call for all of the student teachers who want to become a teacher can criticize and critique them. (laughs) And learn to do it in a happy, joyous way too. Because that's part of the education of the teacher. We can't do this na 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 -na stuff. (laughs) Maybe we are not Catholic nuns. (laughs) We do not have that ruler or that stick. We can't do it. And so we have to learn to give our uh, criticism kindly. And, it's and we need the biggest entrance obstacle, the behavioral oh. issues. That's probably the biggest entrance obstacle 
the behavioral issues between the cultures to get to know each other without fear and prejudgment. Right. And guess what? The Asians are better at that than the Westerners mm. are. Tell tell them. <laughs> mm. That the Asians are much more open to the Westerners coming into the temple than the Westerners are open into going into the temple. Yes. Um... They'd rather read a book. <laughs> Get their Dhamma from a book. So finding out how to get these uh, um, meditation classes started all over the place by uh, by Dhamma dudes who really take the Dhamma seriously enough to quit their job and go hang out and live in the Wat and be partly supported by the Asian people and mostly supported by the Asian people in the sense of room and board, but also supported by our community. By what? by our community, the Open Sangha Foundation, mm. the website that we're building and uh, 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 hoping that we can start allowing people to demonstrate their generosity, knowing that they're going to be supporting the Dhamma in this more Asian way. Then instead of, because most people, they only have what the opportunity to donate to just one group or just one person that normally they pay for the retreats separately and then they donate to the teacher, pay his plane ticket or whatever like that. But with our organization, they can pay for teachers in general in training. That may not, that, that sounded like it landed with the thud. Well, We'll find a plan B. <laughs> yeah. This does, yeah, sound like a very practical, like pragmatic approach, though, to it. Because again, not starting completely from like scratch, taking what's already available in terms of the watts, but to help facilitate like as many people really as possible without, you know, like it's it's really taking, hey, like what's there? How can we use it so that we can share as well and come back to that sharing model? Yeah. There are quite a number of Westerners who have waltzed into a nation what and ordained. I know of three um, personally. It happens. It can happen. Yeah. And, they, and, so, and then they don't know each other. <laughs> well, that yeah, that's really cool, too, is bringing in the connections. Um, yeah, within like kind of like the Western community as well. Right. So folks can get to know each other. They can bounce off of the ideas and network and help hone, you know, the skills and the craft as well of the Dhamma and the teaching and all that. So, yeah. That's another great avenue with that. Okay. Well, um, let's finish this part of the talk then. And we'll cut this off at this point. And I do appreciate you guys listening. Oh, no, we should call for questions. Veda, do you have any questions? Carl, how about you? You got any questions? No, okay. 
I can ask a question. Yes. Um, monastic hierarchy uh, versus supramundane noble no hierarchy friendship model. Um, it was the no hierarchy friendship model during the time of the life of the Buddha, and that remains the primary model. There is also a hierarchy, but that hierarchy is not that important. But it does have a hierarchy. There is a five, there's a two, which is not important at all, a five, a 10, a 20, and then another slight one at 40. And what happens is, is that in the first five years after of, of the ordination, the, uh, the, the young monk or the new monk is under the care of his upajaya. And that normally that uh, care is then handed off to the achan. That in a, the ordination ceremony, there are two primary monks that are doing the ordination. The upajaya is the one who is the presiding. And then the one who talks a lot is the achan. And that normally the Achan brings the monk to this senior elder Upajaya for ordination. And so the Upajaya, after the ordination, hands this young monk back to the abbot or back to the uh, to the Achan for training. But he is still responsible up for five years. After five years, a monk is on his own and can go anywhere he wants to go. He is under no obligation to do anything that he's told to do. And in fact, by five years of the Dhamma, they they've ought to have been able to figure that out by now. That don't nobody run your life. <laughs> and so that's absolutely there. Uh, and so the monk is free to travel, free to go anywhere that he wants to go. The next step is at the step of 10 years. And the 10 year mark is the mark of when they gain the title of Achan. And an Achan means someone who is ready to take care of students on his own. That he can go out and uh, <clears throat> gather up students. But, but what that means is, is that those students will remain lay people until he presents them to a senior monk, an upajaya for ordination. Okay, but one can be an up, uh, 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 an, a, a formal achan um, <clears throat> at ten years. Now here's a here's a kind of cavat on that, and that is is that the ordination itself is quite lengthy, and most of it is being said by the achan which means that if you're going to formally present your students to the Upajaya, you've got a lot of poly to learn and to memorize. That's just a side point. 
<laughs> page after page after page after the 45-minute ceremony of Polly. <laughs> and so you got to be ready for the students at that level. Otherwise, you can go to a, a well-known Achan who already has learned all of that Polly and get him to step in and be the Achan for the ceremony. And when the Achan, uh, when the Upajaya presents him, this new student, back to that Achan for the care, he will then pass it back down to the Achan who hasn't learned the, t the Pali yet. That, I mean, they work together <laughs> like that. There's, there's no problem. Okay, so the next point then is at 20 years, and this is the point for the Thera. And a thera uh, means elder now, like the word Theravada. This is the thera. This is a 20 years a monk, which means that the guy's got to be at least in his middle age. If he ordained at 20, he's 40 years old now. And he's called an elder. But then there's another mark at 40 years, and that is a maha elder or a maha thera. And the Mahateras are almost always the ones who were sought out to be the Upajayas. <clears throat> you you want to find a monk that's been a monk for 40 years, been well-established, well-known, well-beloved, and you want, because you want to be able to have the highest regard for your Upajaya. And so that's where that comes from. So the 20-year mark is when one can become an abbot. This happens often. In fact, the uh, uh, this Wat Khao Tum didn't have an abbot until two years ago. And that was because the monk who was already staying there reached 20 years. And so now the Wat has an abbot. That's how that works. All right. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, Chao Wat is the word for it. And there's also another organization called Chao Kun. And the Chao Kun has in Thailand only between 300 and 500 monks, but they're the very, very best well-known monks in the country. And they receive a designation and actually a new name. They are actually reordained by the king of Thailand as a Chao Kun. And I know a couple of them, okay? And some of these are also the Upajaya. So this is the hierarchy that they have. But it's a hierarchy of an old boys club, and it's a hierarchy of respect, not a hierarchy of authority, because no one has any authority to do anything. Even at the watch, when the monk is the abbot of the watch, he still has no authority there. It's all based upon respect that the bills are paid by the lay people who do the donations. They're the ones who take care of the Watt. Every Watt will have a board of deacons or elders or something of their own, and most always it's a group of old men who do what they're told to do by their wives, because they are Thai, by the way, and it's a matriarchal society. And so the old ladies of the watch are the ones who really run the thing. But if you think about it carefully, that's also true at most Christian churches. It's the grannies who run the place, because if they didn't come, the place would fall apart. 
And so it's good to know all of this stuff when you pop into the what. Gives you a little history and background so that you can hear the names of what people are called and know what kind of level that they and respect that they have. But you always want to find the abbot. That's the first thing. And the second one will be to go find the nearest granny and make friends with her too, because most likely the nearest granny is the one who's been following you around anyway. Because <laughs> she's the one who actually runs the place. She's the head, she's the granny of the grannies. <laughs> and there'll generally be a lady like that. And she'll be the sweetest, most beautiful. Of <laughs> Pardon? Find granny. <laughs> Just writing down. <laughs> find granny, that's right. <laughs> right, find the abbot and find granny and make friends with them and you're in. And so this would be good for people to, to think, you know, if you haven't even thought about going to the Watt, think about it. Think about, yeah, that's if you want to find a little bit about Buddhism, go find it at the Watts because they're all over the place. I was looking for, <clears throat> uh, it's probably maybe a year or two years ago, and they took the site off now. Uh -huh. I don't know why. It's a, a Vietnamese, a Vietnamese, uh, what, in, in, in my city, and <laughs> I can't find it anymore because they took the they took their their internet presence off so no that's probably not what happened probably no one at the watt remembered that they had to renew their four-year whatever contract with the uh with the hoster and they lost their watt a lot of websites get go dark just because the bill wasn't paid because nobody mm -hmm. remembered that they were supposed to pay the bill and not only that, but there's a there's a language barrier. And so Vietnamese watch are normally going to be advertising in the Vietnamese language, and that's not going to do the Westerners any good at all. We uh, they even have a, a, a Buddhist uh, cemetery and everything. I mean, it's very it's um, it was impressive to see the pictures. I mean, it looked like it was a what in 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 vietnam mm -hmm. uh, so i bet that the watch there but their website's down hmm. there has to be a way well you've been there before so you can find your way back over there and i would recommend just go over there probably on sunday morning if it's dead on Sunday morning, it's a dead what? <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't physically over there. Oh so I was okay. searching for the address because it's it's from the perspective then I remember that it was like, why is all this so cryptic? Why is it so hard to find their address? Why is everything so boxed in a and boxed in and boxed in and boxed in it's like finding finding your way f through a maze you know language it's probably just like that. language barrier and 
You Maybe think finding your the... way to a temple in town is hard. Think about Westerners trying to maze their way through the translations of the Dhamma into English yeah, 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 from yeah, the yeah. old Pali. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is really a maze. That's why Buddhism is so amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. And the funny part of it is, is that it's just easy if you know how to look, yes. if you know what to do, yeah. if you see, if you see what's going yeah. on, if you know how to put the puzzle together, or as the old joke yeah. goes, there were three priests, two old priests and a young priest, that were out for a stroll at the way, way back part of the monastery, and the first old priest just walked across the pond, just the edge of the pond, but it was a marshy over there and the pond was over here. So he just walked across the water. And then the other priest, he winked at the young priest and the second priest walked across the water over there. And then getting his strength up, the young priest walks and falls right into the lake. And they laugh. He gets out of the lake and tries to dry himself off and then he tries it again and he falls into the lake again. And as he's crawling out of the, the, uh, the old monks, one nudges the other and he says, shall we show him where the rocks are? Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, very fitting. Mm -hmm. Right, that we have to know where the stones are, otherwise we'll, you know, slip and fall in, which is what happens with a lot of uh, uh, Western Buddhism that it's advertisement. Slips, yeah, <clears throat> into what we're used to rather than um, uh, going after the uh, uh, this other thing that's available. Now, I had I not been a monk in the United States for eight or 10 years looking at all of this stuff, I wouldn't know any of this stuff. But now that I do know, I guess it's my job to let it out, to make this public, to make this connection. I did it when I was a monk. I brought a lot of Westerners into the Watts, but only a few. I mean, one or two people at a Watt. In fact, I left uh, Watt Greensboro with two newly ordained Westerners there. <laughs> so it, it it works and we need to get make this connection and what i mean that it works is, is that the asians are up for this buddhism doesn't um fossilize but they do have an open door and the Westerners are welcome to come right in. Is there is there anything? I mean, it's probably a very <clears throat> it's probably a very um, presumptuous question. Anyways, um, to get used to or to prepare for the cultural difference, really. Mm -hmm. That's what I would recommend to see that Zoom call. And the easy way to find it is just um, uh, uh, search for ZM in the um, 
in the channel because it starts with VM because it was a Zoom call. Most of the Skype calls started with SK and still we top, stopped putting that uh, directive what, on. What's it called? What's it called? ZM for Zoom. It's a Zoom call. I don't remember the name of the uh, of the video, but I do know that the first two letters of it were ZM for Zoom. And there, Robert and I have a dialogue of how to present yourself to a Taiwan, but it's basically that protocol huh. is for an Asian Asian one. And in fact, California, was, Robert. Pardon? California, Robert. Or UK, Robert? No, a Robert who lives here in Thailand. Uh -huh. Another Robert. The ways of the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Yes, he speaks fluent Thai and knows many of this. Uh, in fact, he ha is more familiar with the uh, some of the abbots in the United States than I am because it's been 12 years since 2008, 14 years since I've been there. <clears throat> so things have changed. But Robert knows hmm. more and he we've got a good connection already into the I mean, the abbots in the US all know each other. And so if you can give me a city that you want of the what that you want to move into, Robert and I will get in contact with our uh, abbots to find out who the abbot is, make a contact and put a good word in for you. Because that's how the watts operate. That would be, you know, really great if uh, uh, Ajahn Reet uh, tells Ajahn Tanet in uh, uh, that Robert has called and uh, has a new student who wants to come visit you. Would you like to, to meet him? And the answer is certainly, yeah, sure. It's an old boys network, and we know how to plug in and operate that old boys network. And so anybody who wants to move into a wad, I know just how to get them in. All I need to know is the name and the uh, telephone number of the abbot of that wad. And if he doesn't speak English, I'll get Robert to talk to him. <laughs> in Thai. <laughs> Vietnamese were a bit stuck. But Vietnam. more than likely. Huh? It's, um, it's uh, I mean, I'm looking, uh, uh, I'm sometimes watching uh, this dude. His name is Chauma, I think. He is a Westerner based in New York. Mm -hmm. and shows videos of him just uh, like ranting with uh, his language skills everywhere around the world. Like he's uh, he speaks seven or eight languages or something like this. And Vietnamese is one, uh, he said, it's, it's so difficult because all the tones and all the subtleties in the tones, it's, it's quite a challenge. 
I have stood, I have stood there in a, uh, a Theravada slash, well, Mahayana and Theravada are the same, but with, with a Theravada book written in the Vietnamese script, listening <laughs> to the chant in Vietnamese and not having a clue. <laughs> Hey. So, uh, in, in in any case, um, uh, because you you know the script. If you've had anything to do with Vietnamese, you know that their script is a Roman script with dashes and dots and doodads, and I mean it's just absolutely freckled. And if you don't know what those freckles mean, you don't know what that uh, that letter is actually used for, and you'll think that it's used the way that it is at Western. You don't have a clue. <laughs> there is no place to start. <laughs> Which is not the same as Thai because there's no place to start because their script is absolutely different. I mean, that's a, a real education to learn Thai. But you have to do that same thing with Vietnamese, but people think that, oh, well, Vietnamese uses the English alphabet. No, it does not. If you're up for the <laughs> challenge, it's um, it's probably one of the best ways to really uh, change your change the way your brain works. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, no better way than learning Chinese or Korean or Thai or Vietnamese or. Okay, well, um, I still see inhale uh, uh, the meme. Do you remember what his name was? Uh, Caleb, my name is Caleb. Caleb. Hi, Caleb. Uh, can you turn your camera on? One second. Oh. Okay, good. Uh, I thought that I would spend at least a few minutes talking about uh, basic Dhamma. We have been talking about Sangha for the past nearly an hour now uh, in, in the sense of learning to start the Sangha, but uh, it's part of the triple gem. Do you know what the triple gem is? It's I, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. That in fact, the Buddha is the representation that, hey, you can clean your mind out. Here's an example of somebody who's done that. And exactly. here's the method. Okay, so you actually need a piece of artwork. And then you need uh the paint brushes and the art skills and all of that kind of stuff and that's the dhamma or the teaching or the actual practice and then we have the community of the artist we have uh to learn from each other uh living a noble life is easier when you're living a noble life around others living a noble life and it is easy enough to live like a thief when you are surrounded by thieves. I present to you the Republican Party. <laughs> you got something right there. So uh, noble is when uh, we're practicing together 
and that part of the idea of the sangha is is that nobility rubs off that we actually help each other to become noble that if you associate with noble people you think in noble ways they speak in noble ways and we begin to then actually practice in a more wholesome way naturally but if we're talking to people who are angry and upset and hostile and all of this other stuff, then by listening to them, that's what mental state we're in and that's what we're practicing. And so being associated with nobles makes the path really, really easy. And the second best thing to associating with nobles is being in seclusion, being away from it all. So that we can practice uh, with our own mind uh, to recognize that the only real problems that we've got in the mind is the problems that we brought in here with us, the old past. That, that much of what we're practicing is, is to clean out the past, to clean out the unwholesome parts of the past so that we can enjoy the present moment. That things are really nice right now if we'd only pay attention to what's happening right now. And things are a pile of crap when there's work to be done in the future, problems of the past that need to be fixed, things that are broken, and all of that is just a bunch of work to do. So another way of thinking about it is, is that whenever anything is important, it's heavy. And if we take things lightly, then we have an easy life. That if things are important and they're heavy, now we've got a lot of work to do because we're carrying around a bunch of heavy stuff. I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. And so this is the actual practice of Anapanasati is learning by noticing what thoughts are heavy and what thoughts are light. And when a thought is light, we call it brightening or lightening or gladdening the mind. And when the thought is heavy, we consider it unwholesome, not worthy of having. And so we kind of throw that thought out of the mind. This is exactly what the Buddha was talking about right from the very beginning. He said that I teach only one thing, and that is dukkha, dukkha naroda. If you see that this thought is heavy, throw it out and substitute and have a light thought, a happy thought instead. That's the basic practice of Anapanasati, and it works if you practice. If you take it as a philosophical position in life, you'll continue to be miserable. But if you practice this over and over and over and over again, every time you remember to look at what you're thinking, you have a choice over what you're thinking, and you can take a choice to gladden up, brighten up, be happy. All we have to do is remember to be happy. We can remember that things are not dangerous. By telling ourselves that they're not dangerous, I mean, look around, there's no alligators on the floor. You don't have a snakes crawling up your leg. The bears are not there. Why is it that we feel so afraid most of the time when, in fact, the, the, re, the reality is, is that there's no actual danger? And yet we feel afraid 
on a regular basis. We call it anxiety. But in fact, one would never get angry unless he was already afraid. There's no reason to be angry unless we're just trying to cover up our fear. The reason we get angry is because it gives us the gratification that we're powerful against the, the lost. But if we don't experience any loss, then we haven't lost anything and there's no fear, there's no anger. Recognizing this, we can recognize that most of the fear comes from the thoughts that we give ourselves. We think about a thing that is fearful, then we feel anxiety. If we would stop thinking about things that are fearful, then we can have a happy life. It's such an easy practice, but we're really skilled at being miserable. Everyone I know is an absolute dead ringer expert at feeling bad. So it's almost like to... it's almost like when we feel a negative emotion, it tends to stick mm -hmm. and feel almost permanent. Mm -hmm. But when we feel positive emotions, they sort of fade away fairly quickly. Right, exactly. So. It sounds like that we've got the cards stacked against us, that the deck is stacked against us, right? Guess what? Who stacked the deck? Ah, ah, when we recognize, yes, the deck is stacked against us, but I stacked that deck when I was a little kid. And I didn't know how to stack decks, so I stacked the deck the way that everybody else stacks their deck. And now my deck is stacked against me. I can shuffle these cards around. I can change the way that I manage my data. I can take in some new data and I can reprogram this mind. But I have to practice it over and over and over again. Repeat over and over and over and over again. What that, does uh, what does the sati mean in Anapanasati? The sati means to remember to practice it over and over and over again. In fact, the word sati is a very, very important word within the context of the Buddha Dhamma because it's used so frequently. <clears throat> it's used in the sense of Anapanasati. You've got that one. That means to watch to remember to look at your breathing. It also is in the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. Here, the, the Anapanasati is expanded to the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's object. So these are the four things that we're going to start paying attention to. Okay. When we are capable of doing that, or let us say when we start practicing that, then we're practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, and there you'll find, ta-da, right noble sati, to remember to practice, to remember to investigate, to remember to take the right effort to change the unwholesome thoughts into the wholesome thoughts. And when we get good at that, that means that we remember often. We remember to be in the here now often. We're not going to be in the here now all the time, but we're going to remember to be here now when we need to be here now the most. Like when the cop stops us. The second you hear that siren, it's just like 
Your blood uh-huh. gets cold, you know? Yeah, and so that's the time for Sati. Wake up. You got a friend coming. Don't treat him like an enemy or he will be. He knows how to be an enemy. Let him practice being a friend. Sangha, you know. And that's a hard time to remember Sangha is when the sirens are blowing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or when the doctor says, oh, this is cancer. Or the t- pregnancy test is positive. <laughs> or the bank calls. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons and ways for us to go into a place of needing some sati right now. (laughs) And so we practice it often. We want to, in fact, practice it with every breath so that we can be mindful of the in-breath and mindful of the out-breath and mindful of the thoughts that we're having and mindful of being here now and mindful to pay attention to our senses so that we're actually looking with our eyes rather than looking with some sort of inner eye through our memories. Because the only thing that you're ever going to see with that inner eye is some bunch of old reruns. If you want new information, use the front eyes, the ones who actually can work and gather information, new information. So we want to keep our eyes open. Look at what we're doing. Look at how we're feeling. Pay attention to what's going on. When do we do this? When we remember. That's what sati is all about. If you can't remember to pay attention, you're not going to pay attention. So I've tried uh, remembrance exercises a few times, but I could only ever get it to last about like 45 minutes to an hour. And then after well, that, I just instantly forget. Okay, well, we're not trying to remember things like that. We're more interested in remembering to wake up that in fact another word for uh this remembering that we're talking about is waking up it's not remembering any and everything it's remembering specifically to do one thing sati in this regard is to remember to do one thing and that is wake up wake up and and you've heard the expression, wake up and smell the coffee. Yeah. Well, wake up sure. means that you're going to take a deep breath. You're going to hit that aroma. You're going to be in the present moment. You're going to be here now. Otherwise, you're going to remain asleep and you can have the coffee and you don't smell it because you're not taking that deep breath. You're not getting what's going on. So this is what we mean by remembering. This is what we mean by Shati is to wake up. Look at what you're doing. Remember to look at what you're doing. So waking up and looking at what you're doing, the Buddha actually divide these. But when we put them back together, we can put them back together in the word of mindfulness. To remember to look. To remember to look at how we feel. To remember to look at how we breathe. To remember to look at how we think. To remember to look at what we're thinking. And to remember that we can feel the way we want to feel. That we can breathe the way we want to breathe, if we remember to. We can remember to think the way that we want to think, when we remember to. This is what the sati is, is to remember that you've got a choice here. This is what we mean by waking up. 
I got it. <laughs> Would you say it's almost like it. <laughs> waking up in a dream, but waking up with waking consciousness? Uh, actually, that's a good place to experiment and play with waking up. Can you wake up just enough to control your dream without waking up so much that it's lost and now you're in the present moment? Because the better way is to let the dream go, wake up completely and be in the present moment. Be there in bed with the memory of, I just had a dream. But now I've had a I few uh, lucid dream experiences that were pretty zany, to be honest, but... We well, don't they're need to only go into detail. when you don't wake up enough to take control of them. You wake up just enough to see them, but you don't wake enough enough to say, I'm the king here. I can have what I want to in this dream. And if you wake up fully, you wake up out of the dream. Now, that's controlling it. It's just killing it. <laughs> I've actually had... We're actually uh... going to be practicing then this in seclusion for about five or ten minutes. Just sit there and pay attention to the fact that I can have wholesome thoughts, that I don't have to have daydreams. I don't have to think about Aunt Susie or going to the bank or all of the kinds of things that we do think about when we're not remembering to think clearly. And because we are thinking about thinking clearly, we sit here and practice watching the breathing, watching the body, get in touch with our hands, Pay attention to how we feel. Where's the anxiety inside? Is the body comfortable? Where is the feeling of danger? Where is the anxiety? Where is the uh, discomfort? And it's all to do with right here, right now. And the answer is, hey, there is no discomfort. I feel really comfortable. Thank you very much. And so this is the way that we get started practicing. So that's the shorthand version of it, at least. We won't go into the full detail of it, but many videos we've gone into a fair amount of detail. And so does anybody have any finish, anything to finish with our conversation? I was just thinking there, uh, Don Murata, I remember watching a video with you in UK, Robert, and I remember you shortening it to just remembering to look and change in terms of the sati viewing and effort, like just that whole thing, like that's it, remembering to look and then to change from unwholesome to wholesome, right? Gladdening up the mind. Very easy, very yeah. simple. But it takes a lot of words to describe it. <laughs> And since a picture is worth a thousand words, I'll demonstrate it. Okay, see, that's all there is to it. <laughs> Just let it go, be easy. Just relax. Except that that's not enough, though. I mean, you can look at that picture and say, okay, well, everybody knows how to do that. Well, the answer to that is, is well, if everybody knows how to do it, why aren't we going around doing it all the time? 
Maybe because we don't remember. We don't. <laughs> you, you blew my punchline. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> so that's the whole point of sati, is to remember to let it go. Remember just to relax. Remember that everything is okay. Not a care in the world. Everything is all right. Everything is fine. But we have to practice that because we've been practicing full time how much work there is to it and how difficult things are and how important the world is. And, and we got to go do what we were told to do. I got a draft card here, you know. They'll call me up any time and I got to get ready to go. You know, that's how we lived our lives for many, many years. And it seems like that even though the draft cards are gone, that uh, worrying about, oh, I've got to go do something is really ingrained into our society now. That we never do come to a state of uh, the job is done. We have full employment. As soon as this job is done, the guy's got a new job to give to you. And so when are we going to remember that the job is done? When can I finally take a rest? Let it go. Everything is all right. Let me take the rewards now for all of that stuff that I did all of that time. And as soon as I finished the job, I had more work to do and I never bothered to take my reward of satisfaction for having a job well done. So now I can have a big satisfaction for a job well done and just relax. If I can remember to relax, that's what Anapanasati is all about. And it's stated that way. I mean, if you read the Anapanasati, you sell to with this frame of mind that I'm giving you. You say, of course, that's what it's about. There's nothing else there. They use really weird words like tranquilize <laughs> instead of using words like relax. <laughs> so do you have any questions about this? I have a one small question. Right. I was wondering uh, where emptiness comes into play in all this. I've been hearing that word a lot in uh, talks and texts, and I just couldn't really grasp it at all. There's not really much to it. <laughs> Nothing to it. It's an easy concept. <laughs> Okay. Okay. We make it difficult because we think there's something there to it. We think that it's got meaning. No, sunyata doesn't mean anything. That's what it means. It had nothing to it. Okay. Like, fear, there's nothing to it. Anger, there's nothing to it. Mindfulness, there's nothing to it. How about DJ? Is there anything to that? How about Veda? How about, is there anything to that? 
We put great importance on it. The self is important. That's why they call it the self-preservation instinct. We want to stay alive. We love life. The only thing that is important is staying alive. For some reason, though, being alive and enjoying being alive and being aware of being alive is not so important. And so we need to rearrange our priorities to figure out what really is important. And writing the boss an email is not important. But enjoying this present moment and being alive and, and refreshing this breath and staying alive with this breath, that's the only important thing there is and nothing else to it. Everything else is empty. But there's going to come a time when I stop breathing. I'm going to get tired of doing that. And so this is finished. And then where will I be? There's nothing much to it, you see. If you recognize that almost everything that we think is there's something to it, that's a concept. Conceptualizations. We think that things are heavy and we think that things are important. And because we think they're important, they they become a burden for us and we they feel real. But when we recognize that all of that meaning and all of that importance and all of that heaviness was something that the mind added to it, that the original object didn't have any of that stuff. It was empty of all of that. That everything is actually empty, but we make it heavy. So sati then is to wake up to recognize that things are not heavy. That we made it that way out of our habits, out of our, um, let us say, rules that we made in childhood about what's supposed to be heavy and what's not supposed to be heavy. And what's supposed to be heavy and what's not supposed to be heavy is a bunch of rules that you learned. Somebody told you what was important and you believed them. And now you're applying their rule. And you're messing up, making a whole bunch of stuff important. And there you have a heavy life because you've got a bunch of important stuff. But when you recognize all that stuff that you gave yourself to do is actually empty of that importance, so you're adding that importance, you're adding the meaning. You heard him say, what's the meaning of life? And they get all in despair if life has no meaning. But the reality is, is life only means what you want it to mean. Otherwise, life is just life. And if life is really just life, then it's enjoying the hell out of being alive and it doesn't need to mean anything or produce anything. It's just enjoying being alive. But in our society, they even talk about, well, you've got to leave a legacy. Are you going to leave this world and having not improved it at all? The answer to that for me is this world is already fine. It's got, I mean, there's nothing to it. It's empty. How can I improve it? It's already perfect. I'm going to leave. I'm going to be out of here and I'm going to be completely, <laughs> completely, absolutely. I ain't helped nobody do nothing. My life on this planet is going to be absolutely a dead waste of time. Yeah. 
because there's nothing to it anyway. There's no time there. So start enjoying wasting your time. One of my friends the other day, I, I sent him a video and he says, well, I'll watch it when I make time. And I posted back to him, you know how to make it? I don't know how to make time. All I know is how to spend it, but mostly I'm really good at wasting it. <laughs> I know how to do that. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, well, enjoy wasting it. Enjoy being really good at wasting time because there's nothing to it. I mean, why should you make your time important? You got plenty of it until you die. And after that, you don't care. So why should you care now? I mean, I guess compassion would be a pretty good reason, but other than that, I don't really know. Then be compassionate for yourself first. How are you going to be compassionate to other people who are out there suffering if you're not going to be compassionate enough to yourself so that you're not suffering? So get your own compassion going so that you're not suffering, and then you can use that knowledge as compassion to go help other people not be so fretful. Teach them sunyata. Teach them ain't nothing to it. Forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) And ain't important after all. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Never mind. Start again. (laughs) I guess the closest thing I've ever had uh, similar to that was an experience I had when I was about uh, 11. I used to have this giant phobia of falling over, even on like the dirt grass even mm-hmm. where if I got like dizzy or tipped over or I wouldn't even play football because I knew I'd get tackled but then once I decided to play football just felt like at one time and I finally just face planted into the dirt and it was nothing like what I expected it hurt <laughs> not at all it was totally fine it was totally fine right I've heard that said many ways one of the ways that I've had, heard it said is 99% of all the problems that I've ever had didn't actually happen. 99% of all the problems that I've had in my life didn't actually happen. Where are they now? Huh? I said, where are they now? I don't know. I forgot. (laughs) Forgot all about them. I made them up. (laughs) yeah just forget about them because we don't really have any problems that in fact problem isn't just another word for important problem is just another word for meaning it means something problem is just another word for heavy and so sunyata means that things are free from problems there are no worries there are no problems we invent it all and we could be friends instead. And here we are making problems for one another, finding problems. I mean, if you do find a problem, you got to put a name on it. You got to blame somebody for it. That's the whole point of having a problem. So you can point somebody else out and say that they're bad, they're wrong. And that makes me feel good because I'm better than they are. But when you recognize that whole process is empty, and he's empty, and I'm empty, why should I bother? 
We can be friends instead. So friendship is where it's really all about. And here you have people, as we were talking about in the beginning of this talk, we have people out there charging money to teach people this. <clears throat> well, if they're charging money, they must think the money is really important. How can somebody teach who's charging money? How can he teach Sunyata when everything is empty? But in fact, you already probably have heard, Dave, the, the, the secret is out. The U.S. dollar is empty. The only reason it has any value at all is because there's 200 million billion people who are fruitcakes enough to think that it's got value. That's the only reason it's got any value is because somebody thinks so. That's also the price of art. The only reason why a piece of art mm -hmm. has value is because somebody thinks so. Otherwise, it don't mean a thing on its own. Supply and demand, you know? Right. I mean, okay. And when you stop demanding, you've got a huge supply. Mm -hmm. and when I was about you to... <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. I was about to say, um, supposedly there's no demand for suffering, right? But the supply of it is pretty high in the, in the human population, I'd say. Well, actually, the reason why there is so much suffering is because there is so much in demand. If people were not demanding things, there would be very little suffering. But if we didn't demand things, we could share. It's because we demand things that suffering is there. So in a way, you could say that knowing that, we actually create suffering because we demand it. This is very good information for the meditator to sit there and the reason that he is suffering right now is because he demanded this. He wanted something. And now we're in a state of want. Must have been important. <laughs> But when we see things are not important, then we don't want them so much anymore. And along the way, we we do it wisely. We figure out what is really something that I want. Something that means something to me. And I can be more discriminating because in the old days, any and everything I saw, I wanted. It's kind of on what they call a seafood diet. I don't eat the food I see. Anything I see, I want it. Okay. So we can become discriminating and recognize that, oh, I've got to be very choiceful about what I want because when I want something I don't have, I suffer. And so this is Sati. Wake up. Wake up to what you want. Because if you want something and you don't have it, and and people in meditation, they want all kinds of things out of their meditation that they don't get. A lot of people practice meditation and it causes suffering. They were better off without practicing meditation because while they were practicing meditation, they wanted something. 
What? They wanted the results of the meditation. They wanted enlightenment. They wanted jhana. They wanted sotapan. They want this. That. They want nibbana already. And nibbana is just a state of being relaxed. <laughs> I guess meditation is important to some people. <laughs> and really, when meditation is not important, that means you've got a skill. When you're just sati. Just looking at what's going on, just remembering to be here now. And then there's nothing to it. There's nothing to it at all. <sighs> so, guys, let's just finish this. This has been a good <clears throat> session. Thank listening to me jawbone about uh, open sangha foundation but it's all the same thing if we can make good friends then we help each other and western buddhism is off into the business model of trying to make a profit out of it trying to make it important and so we need to help them turn that around that's the idea of uh, of the website and and uh, uh putting some stuff out there where people can get the idea that there's more to the Dhamma than paying money for it. That's amazing. Thank you, guys. Thank God. you, Donato. Thank you. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>